This is a podcast examining the lives and drives of creative thinkers. People who've turned their dreams into their career. Writers, directors, actors and public speakers, artists and musicians, fellow podcasters, and more. How does creativity work? And how can it pay the bills? This is Created By. Well, this is exciting. I'm glad to have you as a guest for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that the tables were turned not so long ago. Yeah, I know. Thanks for having me. This is It's weird to be on the other side. Um, with both my podcasts, I find myself asking more questions. Now you're in the hot seat. I, I know. It's, it's a little weird. I will be honest, so I'm, I'm not as thorough as you are. Well, it's funny. I didn't really start prepping very seriously until after my first interview. Like, I had done some interview work um, for, like, college projects, you know. Um, and so I was like, nah, this is a piece of cake. I can handle this. And then after I did my first one, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> but uh, anyway. This week, I'm talking with Jess Brown. He's a designer, podcaster, and musician in central Illinois, where I grew up. Currently, he's the Vice President of Design at Aspiration, where he's also my boss. So, tell me a little about yourself. Yeah, I am a Midwest-made kid. Grew up in Illinois. Just recently moved back to Illinois, actually, from uh, about seven years living out in California. Um, Dad of four, one on the way, and got married to my grade school sweetheart. Wow. Um, Oh, and I'm I'm a designer, too. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That little bit. First paid gig, I think I was uh, 14, maybe 15. So is it safe to say that you were always on a creative path, or did you start out with something else in mind? Um, The two things I thought I would either be was something in design or a history teacher, just purely because I loved the pursuit of knowledge, and history was one of my favorite ways of doing that. What was funny is when I was a little kid, I got a piece of paper mailed to me from my grandmother. And there was this, I'm trying to remember the exact name of the movie. It might have just been Dinosaurs. Came out in the mid-90s. And she's like, this is happening with computers now. They've figured out how to completely CG render this. And it almost looks completely real. And it was this article that was in the local paper. And I was like, wow, that's cool. So I can take what I'm doing on my paper and pen and start figuring out how to make that on my computer. That sounds pretty cool. But I I didn't really think I was going to make a career out of it. It was like, okay, that'd be a fun hobby or thing to tinker around with. But it was never like, that's what I'm doing. (laughs) At what point did that switch? When did you realize that could be a realistic pursuit? I think it happened on, on accident. And I honestly think my dad had a lot more to do with it than I did. He saw me in my room late at night working on websites and just creative endeavors, stuff for my band and other things. And he's like, well, do you think you could do this for other people? It's like, well, I, I mean, probably. I, I have never done any client work yet, but that very much could be a thing. And um, he had a friend that was a motivational speaker. And I, I did like a real quick flash website. So super small, some animations. Back then they thought it was super cool that <laughs> this is hilarious thing about now. I clipped him out of the photo that he was in so he could be on like a solid background. Uh, he didn't like the way he was facing, so I flipped the orientation. Um, and they're like, whoa, that's awesome. And it's like, this Just is blue his mind. This is nothing, but cool. Okay. 
on that trajectory, you started doing paid design work, no matter how big or small that profit margin was. <laughs> but along the way, obviously that turned into more work and more work. And um, what were some of the challenges to monetizing those talents that you faced? Any hard lessons stick out to you? I don't think people valued design by itself back then. So for me to make any money, I had to be a developer as well. Like I had to make it come to life. I had to learn how to get up, get it hosted, you know, set all those things up. Um, so design, honestly, for me, for a long time was maybe 25 to 45% of the actual work. And the rest of it was more focused on the engineering side of it and the technical side of it. That was probably the biggest struggle I had was just letting design have its own metric attached to it. You know, so some way for me to sustain a living doing that. Um, even my first agency job was a 50-50 split of that. There, there was no like, oh, you're just a good designer that makes websites. It's you do After Effects and HTML and PHP and, <laughs> you know, do it all and make it happen. Do you enjoy that technical side as much as the design part? Yeah, I do. Um, for me, it's the same as if I was a print designer and understanding how the printer worked and how layering your files and having the ink kit in a certain way or screen printing, something in, in that side of it. It's like knowing your craft. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, for me, if I didn't know that, I probably would have given up on a handful of ideas a lot earlier. But because I was also the technical side of it, it's like, okay, no, I can figure this out. So it, it was interesting. I mean, it, it did put me in a lot of siloed work where I was the project manager and the designer and the engineer on things. So I freelance fit really well. And because of that, I, I had a lot of good ownership over the projects I was working on. So like one of the big lessons I learned was this notion of it's not my company and being okay with that um, and realizing I was hired to do a job and make their dreams come true and not necessarily my vision. That's such a hard thing to do. I mean, I, I, I deal with that today, you know? I mean, just like all the time where you you have to sort of balance that expectation of like, this is what I know to be good design and you're asking me to compromise on that standard. But I, I, I guess that's the tale as old as time for artists, right? Where it's like you have to kind of bend to the to who's paying you, which is unfortunate, yep. but it, it is a practicality of, of being able to do this for a living, so. Yeah, I mean, one of my mentors pointed that out to me too, is have, have something bigger than work to live for, something beyond that that excites you so that work can essentially become a paycheck and then have these other endeavors like sports or music or design to go into the after hours and enjoy that and, and, and let that work pave the way for that. See, that's so interesting because in a lot of ways, I grew up looking at it in the opposite direction where it's like the design and creativity aspect of my personality is kind of like, that's not the work you're doing to allow time for hobbies. Like that is your hobby. Right. Uh, and um, doing that as a professional job for a long time just seemed totally unrealistic. So, so it's interesting that you kind of had that opposite perspective on it. Yeah. I mean, for me, when I create for myself, it's not necessarily consumer friendly it's sketching or abstract or photography things like that that i do just for myself to have those types of memories if i was putting that much of myself i think into my work all the time when people said they hated it or no or gave me feedback i think i would have a really hard time not taking it personally mm. um mm -hmm. if i was creating it more for myself at that point but 
and I think it helps to have the engineering side as part of it as well. I can never focus 100% on just the design side of it. So it was always creating a product versus just one design solution. So you also grew up as a musician. Yes. Uh, at what age did you start playing? Um, so I picked up my first guitar when I was eight years old, um, but I didn't learn my first chord until I was in junior high. And then I played piano a little bit, but I only did that for maybe, maybe a year. My brother is much better at music um, and I'm very competitive. So I kind of bowed out of that and I was like, you know what, I'm going to go learn guitar now. And you were in a band with your with both of your brothers. I was. For how tell tell me about that. Well, what's funny is that's not even my first band. The the first band that I ever had actually was with you and I think we had one song. Our amazing contribution to the history of rock and roll <laughs> in junior high. Yeah, all I remember about that time is um so I think we played that one show. We disbanded immediately. I think for the benefit of all mankind. <laughs> yeah, if I remember that song correctly, I think it was for the benefit of even our own ears. My, my dad had a couple kind of like office type parties and they needed background music. And he's like, well, my kids know how to play drums and bass and guitar. They can just learn some cover tunes and sit in a corner. And, and so my brothers and I started a band and we, we, we made friends with this kid named Brandon, just like a true punk kid, just loved punk music, MXPX and the Good Charlotte whole movement. And he's like, let's make a band. Let's make a real band. Let's write a song. So we did. We wrote one song. And I don't, to this day, I still don't know how this happened. Our first gig was on a TV show. We'd never played a show. And here we are on local cable debuting our first track. Um, that we had written five days before we were on TV. <laughs> so like nobody had ever heard it. <laughs> and uh, that just kind of started us down that journey. Really enjoyed that. And I definitely miss it, but not enough to get back into a band and start touring and <laughs> doing any of that again, for sure. I, I will say creating music with, with family is interesting. The dynamics there are really beautiful in a lot of ways because, I mean, I'm sure it could go south, but we could hash it out in a band practice and then go watch a movie. Um, and it kind of created a interesting dynamic that I always wanted to kind of recreate with any team that I was with where you can be brutally honest with somebody, but not hurt their feelings. There's that trust. Yeah. It's like you can have, you can agree to have creative differences. They are your opinions and that's it. I want to do a lightning round. All right. Are you prepared to do a lightning round? Yes, I am. Okay. Be excited. <laughs> <I> hope. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Texting or talking? Texting for every day, but talking for uh, an intentional conversation. Morning person or night person? Morning. What's the last movie you watched? The John Wick trilogy. Oh, it's so good. What's the last TV show you watched? Um, I cannot remember the name of it. It's a gr that great improv show on Netflix. Um, oh, no, I was even wrong. Okay, last TV show I watched, Last Dance. What's your favorite snack? Um, beef jerky. Do you have a favorite city in the U.S. other than the one you live in? 
I mean, I feel like the default has to be like New York because everybody says it, but I love Chicago and I love Carlsbad, California. I think all three of those are like at the same <laughs> level. Would you rather have super strength or super speed? Strength. What is your guilty pleasure song? Guilty pleasure song. <laughs> it's a funny name. That's why it, it, it throws me. It's fuckboys ruin everything. <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Action or drama? Action. Is Baby Yoda cute? No. How many spritzes of cologne is appropriate? For me, zero. Would you rather ask for permission or forgiveness? Forgiveness. If you could be best friends with celebrity, who would it be? Tom Hanks. Solid answer. Have you ever gone to see a movie alone? Yes. What movie was it? Two movies recently. Um, so John Wick 3, went saw completely by myself. Fantastic. And the new Blade Runner. I don't know. I, I might be a fan of going to see movies by myself. It's kind of nice, right? It is. <laughs> On a scale of 1 to 10, how good of a dancer are you? Is there negative numbers? No, actually, I can ballroom dance. I can't do like normal dancing, but I actually took ballroom dance classes right before my wife and I got married. Let me rephrase. On a scale of one to 10, how good of a ballroom dancer are you? A five. There you go. <laughs> do you talk during movies? Yes. Do you believe in love at first sight? Yes. Is Stranger Things overrated? No. Pancakes or waffles? Neither? You can't pick neither. Do you not like breakfast food? I, I love breakfast food. I hate pancakes and waffles. I can't. I mean, okay, that's the end. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if people make them around my house, we make pancakes. But I, I, I very rarely partake. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Are you allergic to anything? Dogs. <laughs> On a scale of 1 to 10, how good are you at poker? 1. Finally, what is the nerdiest thing about you? Um, I know so much about IMDb and correlations to people in movies that it's absolutely ridiculous. I know the actors, I know the weirdest information, and I don't know why. It's not like I go look this stuff up. It's like I hear it in passing and then it's just lodged. <laughs> <laughs> well nowadays you are the vice president of design at a startup which uh i imagine means that you don't get to do as much hands-on work as you used to right do you find that challenging or is that just kind of a new discipline that comes with the job I miss it, but I, I, f I found other creative outlets. You know, podcasting has kind of become that. Painting and creating music with my kids has been another form of that for me. Um, but as far as within the work itself, I, I've always seen myself as a creative person and just coming up with solutions. So now as a person that um, is in charge of teams and making products happen and communication across different stakeholders, I see those as design problems as well. There's a design and a craft to communicating well and keeping people well informed. There's also design and keeping people happy um, and managing expectations. Um, so I've just kind of taken the design philosophies that I've learned and I'm just reapplying that. As part of that, you're responsible for building a team. 
uh, in this case, uh, a design team. What is it that you look for in team members? Humility. There's nothing wrong with having a little bit of ego, or even a lot of ego, to be honest. But the ability to be humble enough to take criticism is super important. I, I mean, I, I don't know that I've ever hired for talent as much as hired for just pure grit and determination to create something new and exciting and different. I think talent can be taught, but determination, that's on the individual. On a very practical level, though, let's say a designer, I mean, you, you can only determine that grit and that personality trait through through kind of interviewing and speaking with these people and sort of dealing with them on a, on a more detailed basis. Mm-hmm. But they can't really get in the door without a portfolio, right? So how extensive does a portfolio have to be to get your attention? So that's been interesting. Um, I've hired people that didn't have a portfolio, and I've hired people that have very extensive portfolios. For me, it was more the intentionality of the application process. Um, I get resumes all the time that is, are just resumes, no cover letters, nothing. And I'll get on phone calls with those people. Who, they have very impressive resumes. I'm like, oh, tell me about your company. It's like, well, if you applied here, I would hope you would have looked into us a little bit. I shouldn't have to explain who we are and what we do. Um, and I'm also a little different with my first passes for interviews too. It's if I can meet the person face to face, it's at a coffee shop. It's never bringing them into a, to the office setting, um, getting to know them personally, ask them about the things that they've learned, what's been a good project, what's been an awful project. Um, what was the final deliverable and what were you happy with versus not, what were the compromises you learned about? And it's usually not till the second or third interview that we really get into the, the design side of all of that. So what is a good project that you've been a part of and what's been a nightmare? <laughs> I've been very, very fortunate to be a part of a ton of great projects and great teams, too. For me, it's always about the experience more than the final product. The company I'm working for now, we've been featured in Time Magazine and Forbes and, you know, just all these crazy press and PR type things. But Things that I remember are more the people interactions and what we had to do to create that. The projects that I've been a part of that have just been a complete and total failure are interesting because they never completely just totally tanked. They pivoted and turned into other things. So um, forever ago, I was working on an app for dating and uh, it didn't do well, but the mechanism and, and everything that we created there actually became the foundations for an app that was featured through Apple that was called Wishbone. For me, it was like I didn't even get to be a part of that. That was somebody else at Science that that made that. I believe it was uh, Tara Mann, and uh, she did an amazing job. But the foundation of that was the team that I helped put together and and build um, through a failed product, which, you know, to me, that's super cool. What's a project that just was a nightmare for you to work on personally, whether the project was a success or not? The process, when was the process a nightmare? (laughs) Any startup I've been a part of for the first year is a nightmare. If anybody tells you differently, they are just completely full of it. Because you're at the mercy of just something changing every minute, every hour, every day, and completely uprooting everything that you might have been working towards. You also just launched uh, a really very cool product line called Midwest Made. Can you tell me about that? 
Yeah, that that's been a fun project. Um, I I've always wanted to create a physical product that just has like a, a level of simplicity and also integrity to it. And I am a nut. I mean, I think if anybody looks through my Instagram feed, there are so many photos of buildings, grids, desk spaces, workspaces, just constantly making its way in there. Just because I love things having good space and, and making room to create. I found out about this company that had figured out how to create leather material completely from plants. There's no plastic or anything. And I'm a huge proponent of not creating things that will just become waste later. So a buddy of mine and I were talking about like, it would be really fun to create just a handful of products with that material, just see what would happen. Um, And that idea kind of grew into a set of mouse pads, desk pads, and coasters for your workspace at home. Just something really simple, but like, For me, when you're working and your hands are always just touching that keyboard area or the mouse, you want that to not be a gross feeling constantly touching your hands. This material being that it's made out of uh, like coconut and rice and things, it's got like kind of a grounding feel to it. I was like, okay, cool. So Jake and I partnered with them and uh, we just launched the website uh, a week ago. We have quite a few pre-orders already. And I, I don't know, we'll kind of see what comes of it, but it was just something fun to see what would happen. Can you tell me about the practical steps to taking that from being an idea to a product you can actually put into production? Like, how does that happen? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it started as creating our, our, our level of limits. We have a product list that is just absolutely huge from bags to cell phone cases to honestly anything that could be replaced by this material versus leather or like a plastic covering. And we're like, okay, what is the cheapest, least wasteful and easy to produce? And we're like, well, mouse pads would give us a very good entry into that. People could touch it. They could interact with it. They could see if they like the material. And it's a low cost as far as the people on the other side of like what they would be willing to pay. And in the process of creating the mouse pad, we're like, well, okay, what if we designed a space out of this? And so that's where the the pads for under the keyboard and under the computer and the coasters just kind of came in. It's like, well, this would be kind of cool as a set. Your whole desk would have like a unified feel to it. And then we talked to the the company that was creating this and we talked to them about like cuts and and waste on on that. So like how we could design this to the sheets that they have that they produce so that we could rearrange our dies so that there's, you know, so much room (laughs) of anything that could be discarded. Um, And then what was really cool is that everything that's cut and isn't used actually gets to just go right back into making the next batch. Hmm. So it's quote unquote, a zero waste product. Um, and like when, if you were done with it, the, the really cool thing is like you can literally just go like bury it in your backyard and it will it'll cease to exist after a couple of years. It, it will biodegrade. So once we kind of learned that, we're like, we, we just have to put this out. And we worked on a, a couple of prototypes. We took some samples home to use for about three months to make sure we'd want to keep using it. <laughs> um, and we, we loved it. We're like, this is this is great. We're, we're going to take some photos and put it online and see what other people think. So you said people can go online and, and pre-order it. Where do they go to find it? Yeah, so it's Midwest made, but it's it's spelled a little bit different. It's M-A dot D-E at the end. So it's Midwest M-A dot D-E. Yes. 
I like that. One thing I'm always interested in with the guests that come on this show is process. When you have an idea or a concept or something comes to mind that you want to pursue, what are the practical steps you go through to put, you know, meat on the bones? I do this with a lot of things, even with like adding a new tattoo to my body. So in that, for that process for me, I think about it for about a month. And if it still interests me, that's when I'll actually put some legitimate effort into it. Because ideas are dime a dozen. Um, deciding which ones are worth actually pursuing, I think, takes time. After that, I kind of just boil it down to the simplest form. For some things, it's maybe just making a logo or writing out all my thoughts and ideas. I mean, I've, I've got so many notebooks all over my house just full of god-awful ideas. But at least they're out of my head. And right about that point is when I'll start to share it with people and see if I have something or start asking for refinement. And then after that point is when I really get into a process focused mode where I start creating to-do lists. And then I work in these like mini sprints of 25 to 45 minutes and just try to check something off every day. Basically the, the length of watching an episode of something. And that's kind of like my balance of I could watch this thing or I could check this box off. Which would I rather do right now? And I'll do that until the product exists. So the last thing I did like that was the podcast that I launched. I, I also have this tendency lately, as I've gotten older, to put out things that are not 100% perfect, just to actually see it come to life. I'm taking it for what it's worth and knowing that the next time I do something, I'm going to go a couple steps better. And maybe it's not perfect to me, but other people are going to enjoy it, hopefully. I mean, that's something for me too, as, I, as I've gotten older. My investment in time is worth way more to me than even making money on something. It's like, if I'm going to be putting my time, which I can never get back into something, it better really be worth it. So what is on the horizon? Like what's a goal you've set that you are aiming towards? So the latest goal I have has nothing to do with creativity. It's a very long-term goal the rest of my life essentially of just um, trying to stay functionally strong as much as possible and healthy. The cool thing is, is that will be a constant pursuit and something that I don't know that I'll ever hit perfection, but I think that's also kind of a cool new thing for me to learn. I'll never get to finish checking that last box off and just kind of a, a new mindset. It sounds like you've sort of pivoted into a pursuit of equanimity almost, you know, where it's, like you said earlier, it's not so much about the product, it's about the process. Mm -hmm. I think that's very clearly applying to a lot of different aspects of your life, and I think that's really interesting. It's funny, I guess, I, the older I get, the less I worry about design <laughs> as a part of my things. I, I mean, I get paid every day to be creative. I feel pretty creatively satisfied, um, and I think that leaves room for me to work on me as a person and an individual. When I think about my goals and long-term objectives, I tend to think only in terms of what I'm creating as if my whole being is just here to design or write or compose and that's it. But Jess uses his creativity as a means to make room for his real goals. He highlights something important for me and something I think a lot of artists tend to overlook. Life is about more than the last thing we made. 
I really take some of the pressure off, right? I mean, I want to be a great designer and a great writer and podcaster, and the pursuit of those things is important. It gives my life shape and color, but I also want to be a great friend and coworker and husband. It's the pursuit of those things that gives my life purpose. And goals without purpose are just busy work, right? If you want to hear more from Jess, you can follow either or both of his podcasts, Go Do Create and No Friends. I was fortunate to be a guest of his, and really it was that experience that ultimately led to this podcast. So check those out. Again, that's No Friends and Go Do Create. This podcast and its music are produced and mixed by me, Aaron Milas. This particular interview was recorded back in May of this year, but I'm recording the voiceover the day before the episode drops. That's how it goes sometimes. I'm not just procrastinating. I had another version in here uh, when I recorded almost two months ago. But since then, I've learned so much. I've had some really constructive feedback. And uh, the old voiceover just wasn't doing it anymore. So had to re-record it. I did the same for my last episode and the one before that. And I'll probably do it for the ones coming up, the ones I thought I'd finished. Who knows? In a few months, I'll probably want to redo all of them. All that is to say, the work's never really done. You just run out of time. And that's okay. It has been so great to see some reviews popping up. Thank you so much for the ratings and words of support. If you haven't yet reviewed the show, I do hope you will consider doing that because it only takes a minute, uh, but it does really help the show and it means a lot to me, so I would appreciate it. Another new episode is out next Wednesday. I'll be speaking with prolific voice actor E.K. Amadi. It is a great interview. Be sure to check that out. Until then, I hope you carve out some time this week to exercise your creativity. Chip away at those goals. Every little step counts. Till next week, I'm Aaron Milas. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>